Psychology in Seattle. Hey, deserving listeners. So before I get into this episode, I just want a quick announcement that this episode, I had some technical difficulties. So at a certain point, the audio quality is going to be bad. It's about halfway through. I apologize for that. All right, let's get to the episode. Hey, deserving listeners. It's just me today. I thought I would respond to some of your questions. Let's get into it. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist, and I'm also a professor at Antioch University. This first email is from patron Alex. He writes, I'm interested in the concept of people pleasers. I've noticed myself falling into this trap my entire life, especially in work relations and business. Although I'm trying to become more aware of it, I still catch myself doing it. This has, this has created success in certain areas, but devastating effects on my own mental well-being at times. Any insight into what might be the root cause of such behavior and how to feel more comfortable with asserting your needs instead of, quote-unquote, pleasing others? Good question. I'm sure a lot of people might be curious about this. I don't think I've ever been asked this before. Essentially, people-pleasing is a coping style. That's the way to think about it. Sometimes people characterize it as, you know, you're nervous or, you know, you're scared, but really it's a coping style. In essence, in all likelihood, I don't know your history, of course, but I would suspect that growing up in your family, there was some tremendous benefit to having that automatic response of, of really paying attention to what other people want and deferring to their uh, wants uh, as opposed to your own. I'm guessing, uh, you know, common paths to this coping style are parents who mistreat you, who are abusive, or parents who withdraw when they're displeased with you, um, or even just seeing an, a parent or both your parents rejecting another child. So a common people-pleasing family dynamic, uh, not, you know, all the time, but sometimes, is where, you, say you have an older brother or uh, a younger sister who is highly problematic in the family and causes a lot of problems. And your parents, you, you're seeing your parents really struggle with that sibling. You're seeing them really uh, stay up all night trying to you know, deal with this kid. There's lots of conflict that the kid is uh, talking back and the parents, you can just witness your parents suffering. Well, this sometimes compels a people-pleasing sibling because you're, one, sort of being neglected because your parents are having to spend so much time on the other kid. So you feel this need to uh, try to garner some attention by being noticeable. And one of the ways that you can be noticeable is to be very different from your sibling, which is to be very pleasing and very compliant and very pleasant. And so uh, I suspect so that could be another path. You know, it's one of the paths. The other is just general tension in the family. Some families have a lot of tension. You know, there's just a lot of uh, fear of some kind um, that could have derived from a lot of different things. Uh, parental or marital distress, marital conflict can result in that. Just a lot of different things can lead to just general tension, even if there's no overt mistreatment in your family. And that can also motivate someone to develop a coping style of pleasing. There are other coping styles like just being invisible or acting out. Uh, there's a lot of different coping styles, but one of them is to people please. Because when you please people around you, then people tend to like you more and they tend to give you more things. But it 
if you go too far, then you deny your own needs, which makes you feel um, you know, upset. And as you say, devastating effects on your own mental well-being. So it can become an automatic response that you just retain into your adulthood. Also, you might still be highly anxious about not pleasing some people. When you're at work, uh, maybe you have a boss that feels kind of like a parent and they're displeased with you or you're predicting that there's a question mark as to whether or not they're pleased with you. And you might become extremely anxious about that because it reminds you of what happened when you were a child. When we're children, we're much more helpless and therefore we code things as much more important. So when, say for just in an extreme example, let's say when you didn't please your mother, she beat you. Well, the the stakes involved in being a people pleaser were very high. If you didn't please your mom, then you got beat. And if you pleased her, then you would not get beat. And you just kind of retain that model into adulthood sometimes. And then when your boss is maybe displeased with you, you know you're not going to get beat. And you might even know you're not not even going to get fired or even have any negative consequence to you. But it feels like it is an intense, scary situation and therefore motivates the people-pleasing, which is this habitual way of coping with that. So you're asking, you know, how do you deal with it? How do you feel more comfortable? Well, if it's severe, I would go to a therapist for help. Uh, I know that's a cliche thing for me to say as a therapist, but it's true. This is a classic thing that people go to therapy for, and therapy can absolutely help with this. It's a pretty easy thing to, to work on over time and to find success pretty quickly. But in general, what you're going to want to work on are your cognitions. So when your uh, this is cognitive therapy. So when your boss or someone at work, uh, it, well, the first thing you want to get to know is your own reaction. So let's say you're like, oh, I'm having that urge to people please. And then you want to say to yourself, okay, where's this coming from? Oh, I think it's because my boss is uh, a little, seems a little displeased with me. Then you want to go into your cognitions. What story are you telling yourself? Are you telling yourself that uh, your boss is very displeased, even though there's really no evidence of that? Uh, Are you telling yourself that if your boss is displeased, something very horrible is going to happen? And in reality, that's not going to happen. So you want to work on what kind of story you're telling yourselves. These are schemas, their belief systems, their cognitions. The other thing you want to do is you want to habituate to not pleasing other people. It's a habit. And when you avoid something through behavior, then the unknown can become quite scary. So at this point, you might not actually know what it feels like to not please someone at work, particularly someone that you transfer onto. And part of the problem with that is that when you don't actually venture into the unknown, it can feel like this very scary place. And so part of recovery is to actually just experience those unknowns, just take the leap and uh, purposely or, or naturally just don't please someone. And then, you know, deal with your cognitions, take some deep breaths, maybe get some support with your therapist, and then watch what happens. You're probably going to experience not what you're worried about happening and uh, and the negative consequences won't come. And then not only will your conscious mind learn something, but your body will learn something that it's, it's actually a safe world and you don't actually have to please everybody. Worst case scenario are X, Y, and Z, and that's not that big of a deal. So I'm not, 
I'm, I don't have to be so hyper vigilant about pleasing other people. So again, cognitions and habituating to not pleasing other people. The other thing is, is you could have some kind of traumas or some attachment injuries that need to be processed with a therapist. And so I recommend all that. I hope that answers the question. Okay, let's go on to another question. Okay, this next email is from an anonymous patron. She writes, I most definitely have attachment issues. And for the past few years, the biggest contributor to my depression has been loneliness. My loneliness, however, is not romantic loneliness. I've been with my husband for over a decade, and it's been the healthiest and happiest relationship I've ever experienced. But I haven't had a close relationship in many years. And before that, the close relationships I did have were unhealthy. Thanks to your podcast and further reading, it's clear to me that my friendship history is a product of my childhood. You see, my father was very rageful. It was a pattern in my childhood that my father would verbally let all of his rage out on me for lengthy amounts of time. Then he would calm down. Then he would become visibly ashamed and remorseful for his actions. He would ask for forgiveness. I'd give him that forgiveness, wash, rinse, and repeat for the rest of my childhood and teen years. Retrospectively, it makes complete sense that I fell into friendships with similar dynamics. As a result of this, I ended up in friendships that compounded my trauma. It was when one of those friends violently attacked it was when when one of those friends violently attacked a loved one of mine that I finally woke up and realized that I had to make a decision to no longer allow this in my life. I felt so much better. I was happier. I think it's safe to say that I'm on the avoidant attachment spectrum, at least when it comes to friendships and family of origin. I felt as though I was happy with not having close friends for many years. If you'd asked me in those years if I desired a close friendship, I would have given a simple no, and that would have been that. But then all of a sudden, seemingly out of nowhere, I began desiring close friendship again uh, a few years ago. I know that close friendships take time to develop. That wasn't the problem. The problem was that once I started opening up to uh, making friends, I was finding myself in new versions of old relationship. I'd keep giving them a try, telling myself, I only think they're like my ex-friends because I'm expecting them to be like them. I'm, I must be projecting. But then as time would pass, I began to witness malignant behaviors from these people and I'd stopped con and I would stop contact. I've been to therapy and I'm still going. I'm currently working on family of origin work and positive self-talk. I'm very aware that I need to work on myself. I won't be able to develop healthy friendships until I have a better understanding of how healthy friendships are even formed in the first place and what my part in that healthy forming of the friendship would even be. I feel severely lost as to how to break the cycle. I get it. I have to do some healing in regard to my inner child, my family of origin, and all that other kind of stuff. All work I'm eager and willing to do, even though it's incredibly painful. But I look around me and I see people from all walks of life with different traumas and experiences having close, secure friendships. And I can't help but to have the childish thought, why can't I have that? My husband is amazingly supportive and loving. He is indeed my best friend and always will be. But I can't expect him to fill every role for me. That was a really long-winded way of me getting to the point of asking if you could ever talk about the psychology of friendship on 
the podcast in regards to attachment theory, projective identification, and whatever else you feel is relevant. End of email. All right. Thanks, Anonymous Patreons. A very interesting account. Well written. You seem very aware uh, of your psychology and your reactivity, which is great. You're taking responsibility. You have questions. You know, is it me? Is it them? You know, it's all very wise, very mature behavior from you. I commend you for that. And maybe your therapist. I'm also glad you're in therapy. This is a very important thing to, to do. Yes, as you say, as you heal from your past, uh, it's likely that it might alleviate at least some, if not all, the factors that lead to you having difficulty finding friends that you can be close to. Um, now, it's hard for me to comment on you specifically, even though you did provide some detail, because things can be complicated. And so take what I'm about to say with a grain of salt, because some of it might be making some assumptions about you that um, aren't necessarily true. The first thing I'll say is that a lot of people have a hard time getting friends. Uh, you know, you're, you're saying you look around you and you see people from all walks of life with different traumas and experiences having close, secure friendships. And you're saying, you know, why can't I have that? Well, it's possible that the people around you aren't actually um, uh, in close friendships. Now, you talked about in another part of your email, our email exchange, that your husband has good friends, which you would be a good uh, judge of that, given that he's pretty close to you. But beyond that, you might be observing people in relationships that aren't actually very close or are, um, you know, pseudo friendships or something. A lot of people are lonely. A lot of people wish they had more friends. I can't remember the exact statistic, but it's some vast majority of Americans and people in the West really wish they had more friends and uh, wish they could spend more time with friends. So it, it could be that you're distorting things a little bit, but I get that you have an urge to want friends. Of course you want friends. Most people want friends. So you're very wise to look at projective identification. As you know, you internalized a rageful other in your father and an abused self in yourself. So this is a very long-standing, very strong interject in your psyche that involves this raging father who has issues and will be nice sometimes. And then you have this other side of the dyad where you're abused, you feel scared, and you also will give in a lot. So it's a very interesting dynamic to internalize and to be quite stable. And we develop a complex when we do that and we tend to seek it out. We tend to seek out the exact dynamic in our adult life for a lot of reasons. One is, is that it's comfortable. We're also trying to externalize an internal complex that is uh, difficult for us to have internal. And we also want to rework it. We want to re-experience it in a new light and have it go and have it go well. And when we do this unconsciously, it rarely goes well. So, you are wise to look at that as a factor. You would find people that you were close to in the same way you were close to your father. You would find people who were prone to rage and to mistreatment of other people. You might actually apologize for them and apologize to them. And then things would hit a, a certain point and you would end the friendship. So it sounds like a plausible hypothesis around why those things would have happened in the past. Um, so 
until you internalize a new dynamic sufficiently, which you're doing with your husband and your therapist, which is, you know, good work to do. And that's actually one way to look at it is that perhaps with all the work you've been doing with your therapist and all the wonderful secure security you've had with your husband over the years, you finally reached a point where you can actually start um, reaching out to friends and you're, you're thinking, oh man, you know, I, I think I'm ready now. I, I've healed enough and I think I'm open enough to actually expand my relationship zone to other people. So that's one way to look at it. Um, but until you sufficiently heal from the, the traumas you went through with your dad, you're probably going to continue to sniff out abusive people and not detect it and be attracted to them for reasons that you're not conscious of. That's the, that's the, I don't know, the tragedy of internalizing abusive relationships is that you will find that abusive person out of a crowd and um, you'll, 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 you'll subconsciously pick up on the cues of it and actually think, oh, that person looks interesting. I think I'll go talk to them. Or that person looks safe. I think I'll go talk to them. Um, it's completely unconscious. It's not something that you would ever do, obviously, on purpose. So keep healing as you're doing. Keep internalizing the new dyads with your therapist and your husband. Keep raising your awareness, you know, and also keep trying to have, uh, trying to find good friends. It's a wonderful thing that you're doing. The other part to this is you might be socializing others to be abusive toward you. Now, I'm not blaming the victim. You know, if people are raging against you and abusing you, that's their fault. They're completely responsible for that behavior. But the way you described it was interesting. You know, you said as you started to venture out into um, getting good friends, you would say, how did you say? Um, I began witnessing malignant behaviors from these people and I would stop contact. So it's hard to know because, you know, you didn't give me any details on that. But one, it's possible that you're interpreting that in a, in a very um, uh, harsh way, like someone will do something that you don't like and you term it as abusive and quote unquote malignant. Um, so that's that's one thing. So you might be distorting their behavior just on an observation uh, sense. But it's also possible that you might be socializing these people to exacerbate their aggressive uh, behaviors. Uh, now, again, I, I don't want to blame you for their behavior, but without knowing more details, um, I, you know, it's just hard to know. And I would suspect that at least with some of these cases, we would find uh, part of it was you and you were involved in it. You could have pushed their buttons. You could have uh, been around them when they were really drunk or even encouraged them to get really drunk. You might have been subtly encouraging them to get angry and to be mildly angry. Like one, one way to subtly do that is to uh, uh, take pride in their assertiveness or something. And by implication, you're kind of saying that you like their anger or something. You might actually just overtly accuse them of things, or you might kind of push them into a corner. Like one thing that avoidant people will do uh, in this way is they might withdraw a lot, or they might just kind of reject or criticize and that can make people upset and can push them into a position where they might do behavior that you don't actually like, and you might interpret them as being malignant and abusive. Not sure, totally unknown given, you know, maybe every one of these people was completely 100% responsible for their behavior and you had nothing to do with it. I just don't know, but it's worth exploring. The other thing is, is it's really hard to start from scratch to uh, gain friends. 
I have been, um, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty much as hard as dating, really. People think, oh, you know, uh, finding your soulmate is this lifelong uh, mission that you go on, but finding a friend, oh, you know, it's just easy. No, it's exactly, it's exactly the same thing. It's very hard. Um, I've been accruing friendships since I was born and I've lived in the same town or area since I was born and I'm 48 years old and I have, uh, and I don't have any significant traumas that I'm working through or, or complexes, significant complexes that would interfere with my ability to make friends. And I'm fair, you know, I'm on the extroverted side of the spectrum. I'm, I'm probably, I'm like, what was the test? I was like at the 60% extrovert, 40% introvert. And so I um, have cultivated friendships. Some of them, you know, Umberto being one, Bob being another, Rebecca being another. These are friendships that I've picked up over the years and and worked hard to sustain. I mean, there were times when me and Umberto were at a point where we might not ever be friends again because we had a blow up. And I had to work hard at that. And, and it was hard. It was It was a lot of work. And he had to work at it, too. And so very slowly over time, with a lot of intentionality and a lot of extroversion, I very, very slowly built a group of close friends that I can depend on. And if anything got in the way of that, say my own traumas, if I had been traumatized, or if I had moved to another city, or if some drama happened in a particular friend group and I lost half my friends... I would probably have like 10% of the friends that I have right now. So it, it's, it's very hard. It takes a long time. Umberto, I met uh, 13 years ago, and we slowly built a, a close friendship. Probably over the span of five to seven years, we built a close relationship. And really, it's become even closer recently. With Bob, I met him 23 years ago, 25 years ago or something. And again, there were times when we were on and off again. And um, so that took a long time. It just takes so long. Rebecca, I met 10 years ago, nine years ago. Um, so it, it can be very frustrating. And I know a lot of people email in about that. And I know a lot of people even close to me who complain about this. It's just, it just takes a long time. Uh, again, w- especially with people moving a lot. When, when people move, it changes a lot of things. And so um, it's, it's just hard to do. Um, the, other, the last thing I'll say is that it's okay not to have friends. If in the end you find that when you balance everything out, you'd just be happier without having any friends and you'd be happier just having relationships with your husband, with your family and, and your pets, then there's no absolute imperative that one needs to have friends in order to have a happy life. I understand that you have this strong urge for it and that's great. And I would, you know, very, I would encourage you to continue and obviously not give up. But if, you know, after five years of this and things don't work out, there's, there's a lot of paths to happiness. Um, There might even be other ways to gain friendships, like maybe online friendships or, I don't know, more formal friendships like activity friends where you go bird watching together or something. You know, there's a lot of different ways to um, meet one's needs. And if this doesn't work out for whatever reason, then, you know, maybe there's there's another path for you. So I hope that helps. Uh, I'm, I'm probably not saying anything that mind blowing. Let me know what you think. And let's go on to another email. All right, this next email is from an anonymous patron. They write, 
I have been listening to the attachment deep dive episodes recently and am still having trouble conceptualizing disorganized attachment. I have been taking the attachment surveys that you used with Umberto on the podcast. My scores consistently fall on the line between preoccupied and disorganized. I feel very ambivalent about my crushes. On one hand, I really want to get closer to them. On the other hand, I'm fairly certain I'll get hurt and I want and I will want to distance myself. I end up ignoring them or being cold sometimes and other times being open and encouraging towards them. I hate having crushes because they cause me so much grief. My uncertainty makes my feelings fluctuate violently. I'd rather be rejected than be uncertain. My therapist seems to be trying to curb my conviction to give up on all romantic relationships and telling me that trying to control all my attachment is a losing battle. But I personally feel preoccupied and deeply ashamed of my romantic feelings. I can't reach a middle ground. Either I'm all out or I'm all in. I'm not outwardly aggressive or impulsive, but I do direct a lot of aggression toward myself. The ambivalence I feel about romantic interests makes me want to hurt myself. On dates, I can share personal details to the point of oversharing, but when it comes to trusting the other person to comfort me, I freeze and I'm terrified and uh, I'm, I'm fr- I freeze and I'm terrified that they'll later come to resent me for it. I desperately want to be hugged and comforted, but at the same time, never feel safe enough to let it happen. The closer I get, the more panicked I feel. This is where I feel I may have disorganized attachment. As you may remember from a previous email, my psychiatrist described me as having borderline traits, but that I have an extra layer of control over everything. Externally, I can act fairly normal, and if I keep a certain distance, I can interact with guys in a fairly secure manner. But on the inside, it's a storm of ambivalence and shame and self-hatred. What is your what is your impression, Kirk? Please let me know what you think. Yeah, well, first off, I can't diagnose you, obviously, because this is just a written description. In order, whenever I'm assessing attachment style, I have to I have to take. Um, you know, several sessions, five to 10, 15 sessions to really get to know someone's attachment style. It's similar to personality or personality disorders or personality spectrums. Just having someone describe something to me is not enough to, uh, for me to feel confident in providing a label. Having said that, um, you do, uh, oh, and the other thing is I'm really glad that you're in therapy. That's, that's fantastic. Um, good for you. Um, Now, but if I just went off what you are writing, if I was to look for the signs of, uh, you know, what the test said, which is you're a mixture of disorganized and preoccupation, let's go over what you're saying that are really quintessential statements from people who are a combination of disorganized and preoccupied. One is uh, you said, I really want to get closer to them, meaning uh, men that you have crushes on, but I'm fairly certain I'll get hurt. So that's a this that's a disorganized uh sign. For preoccup for purely preoccupied people, they might have that uh suspicion that their repeated relational traumas are going to repeat in the future, but preoccupied people tend to when they meet someone new who hasn't hurt them yet, they tend to see that person as 
this golden oasis that will never hurt them. In fact, a, you know, kind of a hallmark of being preoccupied is not seeing the bad in people at first and then just diving headfirst into the shallow end. Whereas disorganized people are in a constant state of worry about other people, even and in a constant state of desiring other people. So you, so you're really describing the the attachment style pretty well. In fact, another word for disorganized attachment is fearful attachment. Sometimes it's called fearful attachment. I don't like to use that phrase because when we're talking about preoccupied and avoidant, they're also fearful. They're also anxious. I mean, sometimes they sometimes preoccupied is called anxious. And sometimes avoidant is called avoidant anxious. <laughs> and it's like, um, you know, so you have anxious, avoidant anxious, and fearful. Like it doesn't, it's not very helpful labels. So I, I use the preoccupied, avoidant, disorganized labels. So, but the disorganized uh, attachment style, to some, they call it fearful. And what you're describing is a lot of fear. So essentially, you're looking at someone and you're thinking, oh, I, I want to be close to that person, but you have an immediate sense of fear. Disorganized attached people, when they were quite young, were, in a, were put in such a position where their attachment impulses were extremely, they were met with a very consistent, extreme, um, discombobulated parenting, essentially where the child, so if, let's say a parent is very standoffish, very neglectful, or even let's just say that the there is no parents where a child is just raised in an orphanage or something and no one's paying any attention to the kid. Well, often the the what they will develop is avoidant, extreme avoidant attachment, where they just shut themselves off, shut themselves off from other people. For preoccupied people, the general parenting experience is one of inconsistency, where there actually is some love and attention, but it comes at them in a very sporadic manner. It might actually be somewhat predictable to the child in that, well, when dad's drunk, he doesn't give me attention. When he is sober, I do get loving attention from him. Or it could be a very inconsistent thing where the parent has some kind of explosive disorder and just flips out randomly at times. And that can pre preoccupation a lot of people, not always, but it can, in that the child grows up thinking, well, if I play this, my cards right, if I, if I pay very close attention to these other people, then I can play the game and actually get the love and attention that I need. And I'm probably going to have to amp up some level of communication toward my parents to get that attention, either through, through histrionics or through borderline demanding or clinginess or through dependency. These are ways of making sure that uh, the parent knows that you have, you need attention and love and increases the chance of the child getting that attention and love. When it comes to disorganized attachment, there isn't a way of actually, uh, that there is no coping style to get the attention from the parents. And so the child freezes often in fear, which is what you're talking about here. You know, you're saying, um, you know, I want to get closer to him, but I'm fairly certain that I'll get hurt. I I hate having crushes because they give me so much grief. My uncertainty makes my feelings fluctuate violently. I'm now the next thing you say is I'm all out or I'm all in. That's pretty much preoccupation. People who are preoccupied are prone to that all in or all out um, kind of thinking. The idea goes is that 
when you are treated and consistently growing up. You're deprived of love and attention that you really need and deserve. And so you're in a constant state of being thirsty for loyalty, for security, for love, for dedication, for just a long-term good person that you can depend on. And when you find someone who has the glimmer of hope that maybe they'll be that person, then you're all in. You're just like, oh, my God, finally, I finally, you know, arrived. And you just dive headfirst into the pool. But uh, when anything goes wrong with that person, like they look at you funny or they hurt your feelings somehow, then there's this terror of, oh, my God, is this person yet another person that, I've, you know, learned over time will reject me and betray me. I better run for the hills because if I stay here too long, then this is going to be awful. So that's a preoccupied position. So I'm guessing that's why you tested on that. And by the way, the test that you took online, it's not, a, you know, a very um, reliable test. You, if you really want to know what you are attached with style-wise, it's best to have a conversation with your therapist about that. Um, you also write, write, when it comes to trusting the other person to comfort me, I freeze and I'm terrified that they'll later resent me. This is classic disorganized attachment uh, behavior in that, you, so you're saying, when it comes to trusting the other person to comfort me, so you, you, you're kind of reaching out, you're saying, geez, I, I, really, I really, you know, like you, you're hanging out with someone and you're just like, oh, I had a hard day and I just, I just need someone to make me feel okay. And you kind of reach out to them. And you say that you freeze and you're terrified that they'll later resent you. That's an interesting fear, right? You're not necessarily worried that they're, you're not only worried that they're going to reject you and not take care of you, but you're also worried that they're going to resent you later, which is a very interesting twist, I would imagine, and sounds very disorganized, but a particular flavor of disorganization that probably reflects the way you were growing up. It's quite possible i would imagine that as you were growing up and might even be pre-memory like when you're one two years old where you would reach out to your parents or other caregivers to comfort you and they would uh, punish you somehow for that move now to be clear parents don't consciously punish their kids for this the way that it might look would be uh, your parents are uh, in a state, let's say you're, you have a single parent, you're raised by a single mom, and she has PTSD, and she's been traumatized, and she is stressed about work, she's stressed about romance, she's stressed about being a parent, and you are, um, you know, in the morning, you wake up, and your mom's there, and she cooks you breakfast, and that feels loving, and your mom kisses you on the forehead, and you feel like, oh, great, mom loves me. And then uh, later on, you're playing in the living room. You're, say, you're two, three years old. And all of a sudden, you know, you're just kind of bored and you want some interaction with your mom. So you stand up and you go over to your mom. Now your mom is on her phone or whatever back then. And she's distracted and she's triggered. Something triggered her trauma. And now she's in a state of, of panic on the inside, although it wouldn't be apparent to you as a child. And in her mind, in her soul, she's retreating from the world. And she's just like, uh, you know, she's her her nerves are on high. She's in a high level of distress 
but you wouldn't know that as a kid. And you walk up to her and you're just like, mommy, and you just sort of, you know, the way kids do, you just pl- plow into her, or you, you, you bump into her knee or you grab her, you know, her shirt and you yank on it and you say, play with me. And then she just flips out. She's just like, not right now. I'm busy. You know, can't you see that I'm busy right now? Get away from me. And so the mom isn't setting out to do that. She's in her own world because of how much distress that she's in. But from your standpoint, you're just humdy dumdy dum. You walk up to your mom thinking, well, you know, she was fine earlier. And then all of a sudden, boom, this massive reaction from her. And that puts a shockwave through your soul and your physiology. And you're, you're, in a, you're just like, oh, it's like being hit by a car or seeing someone get hit by a car or seeing someone getting shot. All of a sudden, just like, boom. Right there, terror, and you have nowhere to run because you have a single mom. You don't have a, an older person you can run to, and and you're just you just freeze, and you you repeat that enough times, and you know, say six months later, same scenario. You go to the living room, you're playing, and all of a sudden you have this urge because why wouldn't you that you want to interact with your mom, and so you stand up and you start walking over to your mom, and then all of a sudden. You all that physiology of trauma comes rushing back, and you you have this deep sense of fear. Now, at the age, you might not exactly know why that's happening, but you have this deep sense of fear, and you, you freeze because there's a part of you that wants to go to her, and there's another part of you that is just physiologically in a fight or flight, almost dissociative state, and so this prese- this prevents you from actually even asking for love and attention from people around you. And you perhaps never get the love and attention that you really needed or sufficiently. And then you grow up and your attachment objects transfer often to romantic objects. And so you're looking at a fella and you're thinking, oh, you know, I I would like to get to know that fella and I'd like to um, uh, express my crush to them and maybe they could hold me and we could, you know, be dedicated to each other or maybe just have a romantic evening or something and that would be that and you freeze you're just you're because your body is saying danger 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 it's not just a cognitive thought it's not a learning of the conscious mind it's a learning of your body a learning of your unconscious mind so again hard for me to know based on your description but it kind of sounds like that Uh, you also say the closer I get the more panicked I feel You also say, I desperately want to be hugged and comforted, but at the same time, never feel safe enough to let it happen. So again, yeah, absolutely. It sounds disorganized to me. If you were purely preoccupied, there'd be more organization to it. And there you would actually, in all likelihood, reach out more often. Now, certainly there's a lot of preoccupied people who have given up and they're just like, nope, I'm done with, I've had clients like that where uh, they might say, I'm done with romantic relationships. They might either say, uh, you know, romance is dead in America or all men are pigs or something. Or they might say something like, um, I've realized through my own uh, self-discovery that although I-, I want to have a romantic relationship, given my level of, of you know, uh, personality disorder and that it would take a long time for me to heal from that. At this point in my life, I can't really engage in romantic relationships because they're too triggering for me. 
So I'm going to focus on friends. I'm going to focus on family. I'm going to focus on my kids. I'm going to focus on people at church and those, my therapist. And those are going to be the people for me. But romantic relationships are just too triggering for me. So I'm, I'm not going to engage in that. So you'll see, uh, you can see avoidant behavior, so to speak, in preoccupied people. But, uh, but the baseline of all that is a preoccupation with how other people think and really worrying about that and having an intense you know, all in and all out with disorganized people. It, it does. They're so fearful of the uh, attachment behaviors that they freeze before the process even begins. And they can be quite confused about it. They can, they can be quite like, I don't really understand what's happening. Uh, you know, people tell me that I'm supposed to reach out to people and, uh, you know, why am I so afraid? And it's a visceral fear because it was developed at the age of six months, 12 months, 18 months. It's not something you can just think away. Um, so that's what I think about that. Uh, let me know what you think. I'm curious what your thoughts are. All right, let's take a break. And when we get back, let's answer some more questions. Right, we're back from the break. In all likelihood, at this time, we're probably offering another scholarship. So if you want to apply for that, go to our website and go to the scholarship button and just um, apply for a scholarship. Because I don't know, depending on when this episode comes out, I don't know where we'll be in the, in the process. But at this point, uh, we're accepting applications for a future scholarship that we may or may not um, uh, that that I that we definitely will offer, but I don't know when it will be offered exactly. Also, if you've applied in the past, you don't need to reapply because your application will just be carried over into the next one. If you don't win, obviously, we're actually going over the applications right now. We're going to announce the winner August 10 during the uh, 11th anniversary show, and so tune in for that. Also, buy my book, Multi-Role Clinical Supervision. About once a month, everyone uh, buys my book. <laughs> um, also, on Patreon, there's different tiers. A lot of people are at the $5 tier, but if you feel like you want to, you can bump yourself up to another tier. At the $10 level, you get swag. At the $25 level, you get a mug. And at the $45 level, you get an hour of consultation with me. Um, just one hour. Uh, some people think it's one hour a month or something. It's just one hour. But, um, yeah, so a lot of people are kind of taking advantage of that. Um, also, we are, my the pod wife just bought some enamel pins with the podcast. And so with the podcast, you deserve it on it. And there's going to be a special about that. So stay tuned for that. Email me if you have trouble with the premium feed, and if you want access to the archive, go to the website. All right, this next email is from Patron Alex from California. Patron Alex writes, I am an associate marriage and family therapist who wonders frequently if doing this work is, going, is, is good for my overall well-being. Doing this work is, is good for my overall well-being. I have been diagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder and depression. I struggle with emotional regulation. I have a past history of addiction, but have been clean and sober for the past eight years. I also struggle with occasional non-suicidal self-injury in the form of cutting. 
I take antidepressants, and I've been in Jungian psychoanalysis for the past several years, which I find to be incredibly helpful. I like working with clients. It's very meaningful to me. However, on bad mental health days, I find the work overwhelming. It is hard for me to sit with the uncertainty of what is going to happen during each session, and I find myself frequently judging myself for how I'm interacting with clients. I'm aware that some of this is a part of being a good therapist, but I can't help a uh, part of being a new therapist. Sorry, I'm aware that some of this is part of being a new therapist, but I can't help but wonder if the job will be too much for me to handle in the long term. It doesn't help that my depression seems to have increased in the past year. I'm increasingly having suicidal thoughts, no plan or intent, um, and I have engaged in cutting more frequently over the past six months. My therapist is aware of it all, and we have acknowledged that these are signs that I'm wanting to escape my reality. However, I can't help but judge myself for these symptoms, and I wonder if I'm too sick to be a therapist. My cat has awoken from her nap in the afternoon, and she's announcing to the world that she's awake. My cat announces to the world everything she's doing. It's, she's like, I'm announcing that I'm entering a room. I'm now announcing that I'm laying down. And now I'm announcing that I want out of this office, so I have to open the door for her. Just a second. All right, so the cat is out of the bag and in the world. Let's get into this, back into this here. Um, so he says, while I know on some level the therapist's while I know on some level that therapists are human and have their own struggles, it is difficult not to stigmatize myself for not walking the walk, so to speak. Is it possible to be too wounded to be a good therapist? Have you heard of therapists with similar issues being, eff being effective in this work? How do you personally manage in times of poor mental health? These are great questions, Patron Alex from California. Uh, the first thing I'll say here is... You say, while I know on some level that therapists are human and have their own struggles, it is difficult not to stigmatize myself for not walking the walk, so to speak. Um, I would get rid of that belief right away. No therapist, no matter how good they are or wise they are, can walk the walk consistently. <laughs> um, I myself, if I you know, were my own therapist, I'd be pretty frustrated with how... Um, I don't know how, well, I don't know if I'd be frustrated, but I would notice from the outside that although I can um, give, I can talk the talk with people, it's hard to walk the walk. And, and that's actually something that all therapists need to acknowledge as they talk the talk is when you're talking the talk to your clients, you have to acknowledge that you yourself have a hard time doing it. And so uh, that should be incorporated into it. Um, it's part of the wisdom of being a good therapist that you say uh, when you're, you know, trying to convince someone to uh, pursue secure attachment or something. Uh, it's hard to do that. It's scary. It's annoying. It's distressful. It's it requires a lot of energy. And no one's ha no one has a, an endless supply of resources like that. So the fact that uh, you are, quote unquote, uh, not walking the walk. And even that phrase doesn't make any sense. Uh, it, you know, if you're, there are certain industries where we would say one should walk the walk if they're talking the talk. Like a police officer shouldn't be a criminal, right? A, um, 
I don't know, what would be another? A plumber should have uh, good practices at home. Re, you know, a plumber shouldn't fl- uh, uh, flush floss down the toilet or something. You know, because the plumber will be like, don't, don't flush floss down the toilet. Well, they should probably walk the walk, right? Well, okay, great. There's some things where you should walk the walk if you're talking the talk. But when it comes to therapy, uh, one, no, no therapist talks the talk like, you should do this. And if you don't, there's something wrong with you. Like, no one does that. So to walk the walk, uh, so let's, let's talk the talk, <laughs> which is to say we're all trying our best. And no matter how hard we try, we're never going to achieve uh, even like 50% well-being. <laughs> you know, life is suffering and we all have traumas. And we all have bad days and we all have bad moods and we all have our conditions. And so uh, talking the talk in a real way, in a wise way, wise talking and, you know, talking the wise talk means that you understand that it's hard and that everyone has their issues. So you can absolutely walk that walk. uh, But, you know, I hope (laughs) hope this all makes sense. Uh, Is it possible to be too wounded to be a good therapist? You know, I suppose so. Um, I mean, I wouldn't say that definitively for someone. It really just comes down to how much you personally think you can handle. Uh, I suppose if someone was extremely psychotic in a consistent way, then that wouldn't be very conducive to being a therapist. But having depression, I mean, the uh, the percentage of therapists that have depression is that probably the same percentage of people that have depression, which is something like, I don't know, five ten percent of people. So five ten percent of therapists suffer from depression. And, you know, so, you know, that's, that's not a barrier to particularly generalized anxiety disorder. Um, have you heard of therapists with similar issues being effective in this work? Absolutely. I have personal friends who suffer from severe depression and anxiety. The sort of depression that cripples you and you don't even get off the couch for days that kind of depression and they're absolutely effective therapists how do you personally manage in times of poor mental health for me i think that i'm relatively stable personality wise given my upbringing and my biology and privilege in life and luck that it doesn't require that much from me but i can i'm I, I've had moments where things were going bad. Like, I remember one time I had just started working as a therapist at an agency, and my boss emotionally abused me for a hat. So I had a supervision meeting that was an hour. And although I really liked her as a supervisor, she was prone to overreaction. And she sat me down and just berated me for first long story short for something that was totally not my fault. It was like this, she was anxious. She she had just got out of a meeting where she was being berated and then she sat me down and just decided to berate me and it felt very scary. And you know, my heart's pounding and I'm sitting there listening to what she's saying and I, I'm trying to defend myself, but she's not letting me defend myself. And at about the half hour mark, I just stood up and walked out of supervision. I'm like, okay, I'm done here. And I just walked out. uh, And she was a little dumbfounded by that. But um, I think she later apologized. I mean, I know we later made up um, for it. But I had a session right after that, I remember. And I remember thinking, how am I going to get through this session? I mean, I'm 
my my body is going through something. My heart's pounding. I feel that sort of post-trauma physical sickness that you feel. My mind is reeling. I, you know, I, I can't, my, I'm ruminating on this. You know, how could she do that? Should I quit? What the fuck is happening right here? What, you know, you're just brains a buzz after being traumatized. And I remember sitting down with my, this was like one of the first times that I'd ever been through something like that. And I just resolved, you know what? I'm not going to be the best therapist with this client. And that just sucks. What am I supposed to do? Cancel the client? I don't think that's, you know, I don't think I'm at that level. So what I did is I listened and I didn't talk much. And when things occurred to me to say, I just said, you know what? You might not actually know what you're saying. So just listen. And in some ways, I was probably a better therapist in that moment because I was purely listening, which, you know, people generally really want and need in life. And so that's what I've done. Um, So the other thing I'll say is that not only depression and anxiety, but um, there's a lot of uh, therapists who suffer from non-suicidal self-injury. It's a common enough condition that uh, among therapists, you know, it's, it's common. And addiction as well. It's, it's very common for therapists to suffer from addiction in the same way it's common for a lot of people to suffer from addiction. And then you wrote, is it, uh, you say, it is hard for me to sit with the uncertainty of what is going to happen during each session. And I find myself frequently judging myself for how I'm interacting with my clients. Well, this sounds very normal um, to not be uncertain of what's going to happen during each session. You know, you're a novice therapist, so you're probably, I don't know if this is what you're doing because you didn't describe it in full, but uh, one of the things that I did at the beginning of my career, and a lot of therapists do, is they try to plan for their sessions. So they're like, okay, I'm going to work with this client today. Okay, what am I going to do? Okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And there's nothing wrong with making a plan. In fact, it's probably a good exercise to get into because it gets your brain moving in terms of repertoire and options and, and that sort of thing. But the plans never work out. It's a cliche or a, a known saying in therapy that um, you know plans are will always uh, be useless because the client comes in with their own thing. Plus. When you come in with a plan, sometimes clients kind of detect, detect that and they'll they'll just thwart it because they, they don't want you to dictate sort of a, an, a curriculum, so to speak. Some clients do, but most clients don't. So the fact that you're, you know, it's hard for you to sit with the uncertainty of what's going to happen during each session. So I would really focus on what kind of cognitions are behind that, that you're trying to hold on to some sense of certainty or predictability about sessions i would let go of that as if you can of course talk with your therapist you know i don't know if you're talking about some sort of severe trauma anxiety that you're having around that or if it's just a existential uncertainty that you that you're having uh be a leaf in the wind when it comes to clients sit down and listen and so you're also saying i find myself frequently judging myself for how I'm interacting with my clients. The best thing you could do, and this is what I tell all novice therapists to do when they're freaking out, is listen with compassion. I'm guessing, Patron Alex from California, you know very well how to listen with compassion. You, you know, someone comes in and you say, uh, what do you want to talk about today? Tell me what's going on. And they're like, well, this is going on. And you're just like, oh, you know, tell me more. Tell me more about that. And what I find is a lot of novice therapists, they try to tinker too much and 
although the tinkering can sometimes be useful, uh, sometimes it's not because it's they don't really know how to tinker yet, and it takes away from the very, very needed function of therapy, which is to listen with compassion and reflect back what people are, are experiencing. So, you know, I don't know if that helps, but that's one to think. To think. So in terms of your prognosis, there's a number of possibilities. One is, is, as you say, it could just be novice stress. You could be in a phase of early career stress that you're not going to feel later on. So that's one thing to, to think about. The other is that as you heal in your therapy, that you might feel better in session. So that's another thing to think about. Also, you know, and one of the things that I thought of was maybe some particular kinds of clients are triggering you. I would recall the moments where you feel worse. Maybe you just feel generally bad with every client, but I suspect it's particular kinds of clients. And so I would review that with your supervisor and your therapist, maybe in terms of what is it about certain kinds of clients that are triggering this in you? The other thing to think about is uh, you would, as you were describing your situation, I was reminded of a supervisee that I worked with years ago who described this exactly. He had a dis, or he had a history of depression and anxiety, and then he became a therapist, uh, and I was training him and supervising him. And as he was in his early career, he became more and more depressed and more and more anxious to the point where he was more depressed than he had ever been. And he would attribute it to his job and how stressful it was. And one of the things that was happening to him is he was getting screwed over by his agency. They were manipulating him. They were lying to him. They were um, crazy making with him. If that's, you know, it's, I won't go into the details, but his employer and his supervisor on, you know, at his site were just being crazy. And he was descending into very deep depression because of that. But it was unclear if it was just like, well, maybe therapy is stressing him out. Who knows? Well, I helped him to get a different position. And after getting the position, he completely uh, came out of his depression and his anxiety. Now, I don't know if you're in a situation you don't describe anything like that, but it's possible that you're at a particular kind of job or a particular kind of situation in your career where it actually is really triggering a lot of you know transference issues for you and really triggering the cutting and the suicidal ideation and the and the depression. So I would look at that too. I would look at you know, uh, the stress of your particular work situation. The last possibility is that, you know, and I just have to say this, is that no matter what you do, it's possible that you're going to burn out and find that you just can't do this job. And I would monitor that. I would monitor at what point do you just pull the ripcord it's, it's, it's possible, you know, that could happen. Uh, the consequences of not pulling the ripcord could be you increasing your cutting, increasing your depression, increasing your suicidal thoughts. So there's a, a need to keep an eye on that ripcord and, and keep an eye on your well-being. And I'm not going to be all, you know, 100% Pollyanna here and just see like, yeah, you know, this will work out because I, I don't know what's in the future for you. But there's nothing that I'm hearing from you that indicates that uh, things aren't going to work out. Um, I wish I could just hand the mic over to some of my colleagues who would tell you that they went through the same thing when they were in their early career and had extreme mental illness issues and 
were also questioning whether or not they should stay in their profession. And they persevered. They got the support they needed. They got the jobs that were better for them. And although their depression would come and go, they had a wonderful career and helped people a lot. And I guess the last thing I would say is um, monitor your effectiveness and your availability to your clients. Because, I, you know, you didn't say this in, in your description. I'm guessing it's not true. But there's a possibility that you're actually so impaired that you're not effective or even like a harmful therapist. So I would, I would definitely, you're an associate, so you have a supervisor. I would ask your supervisor actually to listen to audio of your sessions to make sure that, that's, that everything's cool. Or you might just kind of know that too. So keep, doing, keep going to therapy. Assess your overall support system and your burnout prevention system. Assess your coping system in the moment, you know, as that's happening in session. Assess, like, how do you cope with that in the moment? And also assess your countertransference management system. And let me know how things go. I'm curious. Okay, these next questions are from patron Karen. She submitted a bunch of short questions, so let's get into it. When doing family counseling, do you ever feel sometimes... Uh, just a few sentences could probably fully change what's going on and solve the problem, but you struggle because you just don't know what those words are. Um, interesting. So when, you, when I'm doing family therapy, or I guess any kind of therapy, do I sometimes feel that just a few sentences would probably fully change what's going on? No. I have. Maybe I used to think that in the beginning of my career, because in the beginning, when you're in graduate school, that's something that's subtly communicated to trainees, which is that if you just knew the right thing to say, it would solve all the problems because the demonstrations of therapy that they show you with videos, they don't have time to show you 20 hours of a therapy relationship. So the sort of clips that get privileged end up being the sort of clips that instantly work, right? And that is not typically how therapy works. I don't know if it ever works that way, honestly. Um, I mean, I will say I recently had a couple that came to me for one or two sessions. And at the end of those two sessions, they told me that, you know, things had turned around for them as a couple drastically. Uh, but I worked pretty hard in those two sessions. So I think that um, so there wasn't any particular thing that I said. Uh, so, no, I, I don't think that's how people work. I don't think that's how therapy work works at all. People tend to, the thing that I often say to people is, if, if, it, if it only took a couple sentences or one intervention, then they wouldn't be in therapy because it would have occurred to them at some point. People don't come to therapy going like, um, boy, I've never thought about this before. Let's go to therapy. The, you know, when, when a problem emerges for you, like your relationships are going badly or you have anxiety or you feel lonely, there's a lot of time thinking about solutions. There's, there's probably a lot of time doing solutions and nothing seems to work. And then you go to therapy. So if it was just one tiny little pithy thing, then uh, they wouldn't need therapy to begin with. Plus, I just don't think people work that way. The, with people that I work with, there are things that I, you know, there's a sort of emergence of change that happens where they just like, let's just take, for example, the issue of assertiveness or something. And they come in, they talk about, uh, one, they don't even know they're not assertive. So they come in, they talk about their problems. And I identify, 
you know, what it sounds like is like you have a problem with assertiveness, so maybe we should talk about that. And then we start talking about it, and they're like, huh, okay. And then by session five, talking about it, they're like, oh, you know what? I think I'm really beginning to see what you're saying. And then by session 10, they're actually starting to do something about it. By session 15, they've done things about it, but they're starting to wonder if it even makes any sense because they feel mean when they're being assertive. By session 20, uh, they are um, like 10% assertive, but 90% their old tapes kick back in. And so, you know, that's how it changes. Anyway, you have another question, patron Karen. Do you subscribe to the idea that often how you handle one thing is a sign of how you handle most things? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's hard to generalize to all human behavior and everybody. But yeah, once we find something that works, we tend to generalize it to lots of different things. Like, for example, with attachment style, when we are two years old, we develop certain coping mechanisms to cope with distance and rejection and chaos. And we stick with that for the rest of our life, even if we don't need it later. So, yeah, absolutely. You ask a question, what TV series can you not get enough of right now? Well, I'm not, I'm not really obsessed with a TV show. I just finished Stranger Things. Uh, I got pretty, me and my wife got pretty obsessed with the TV show You. Uh, that has a good pace to it. Um, Stranger Things was another TV show that we really liked. Um, I mean, I wouldn't say Stranger Things Season 3 is amazing, but uh, it's a fun watch for sure. The characters, the story. The story's a little confusing at times, honestly. <laughs> but um, but the show that I really enjoy that I'm watching today is Fleabag. I just love that show. It's hilarious. It's interesting. It's, it's like nothing I've ever seen before. Uh, it's it's fast, it's funny, it's interesting. The characters are so interesting and deep and and it's um it's just a great show. And I probably will do an episode about it because the main character, I guess everyone has an, it's actually an interesting family therapy uh you know, conceptualization and individual defense mechanism, conceptualization, trauma conceptualization. Uh you ask do you think other species other than humans could be D- could meet DSM criteria? For example, could a cat be borderline? Not not your cat, Michelle. She is clearly she clearly has a good sense of self, and she firmly vocalizes her truth and then walks away like she just dropped the mic. <laughs> We've heard it on the podcast. <laughs> oh my god, that's hilarious. Um, <laughs> my cat has a good sense of self because. She um, vocalizes her truth and then walks away like she just dropped the mic. Oh, my God, that's hilarious. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Oh, God. Um, Can can animals uh, meet DSM criteria? Absolutely. There's actually a whole field of research around this. It's hard to do such things because you can't ask them, right? But you can code certain behaviors. Like some some cats actually do suffer from anxiety. And I have a friend who actually administers a anti-anxiety medication by you 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 put on gloves and then you that's a cream, like a lotion, and then you rub it into the cat's ears, because the inside of a cat's ears is kind of porous, like the inside of your nose, and the drug sort of goes through the skin. And 
the the cat is much less anxious <laughs> and that cat was very anxious was ex- just very very anxious and so um yeah i mean it's hard to know because if you could ask them maybe they'd be like you know what i don't mind being anxious i like this lifestyle but you can sometimes see animals uh and they don't seem to be really doing very well uh psychologically speaking so yeah there's a whole field of study like this um i'm actually really fascinated by it and it makes a lot of sense to me um, but like I said, the research is kind of hard because you have to go off behaviors that you don't necessarily. So with humans, we can go off behaviors, but we often can ask people in general, when you do this behavior, what, why are you doing it? You know, what's going on inside of you? And then we can sort of translate that into seeing a behavior and then going, oh, that must mean that could indicate that inside of them, this is what's happening. Um, but just actually... Now that I think about it, the DSM doesn't really care about what's going on inside your head. It's only it's mainly worried about behavior. So, um, you know, I could see in fifty years there actually being a DSM for particular animals, uh, certain behavior ultra, and maybe they, maybe they already have not a DSM, but some kind of medical veterinary manual around psychological disorders. I bet you that actually exists. In fact, I'm going to Google that right now. Okay, after a very quick Google. Uh, I didn't find any kind of manual, but there are animal behavior specialists who probably do have diagnoses for animals. So, yeah. Um, your next question here. What is your go-to chill music album? I actually don't listen to chill music. I don't like chill music. I certainly like slow songs at times, but if you look at my Spotify playlist, and I, I, have, a, I have one Spotify playlist that has... Uh, 3,000 songs in it that I like. And so uh, if you listen to that playlist, there would be almost nothing in there that would be considered chill or slow or downbeat or something. It's it's, it's a lot of upbeat. I really like upbeat music. Not because I, I... So by upbeat, I mean like Depeche Mode, which is upbeat, but it's also quite depressing and sad. Um, I, I just don't like really wispy amorphous music you know i come from a i don't know a time when i don't know that's just not my thing but i will rattle off uh my top band so i have a playlist on spotify that the top 100 songs and i can i only can pick one song by each artist so these are the top so it's the beatles rem depeche mode smashing pumpkins elliot smith the cardigans fleetwood mac robin olivia newton john Mazzy Star, The Strokes, Journey, The Knife, The Smiths, First Aid Kit, Rush, Tegan and Sarah, Traveling Wilburys, um, Cat Stevens, Madonna, MGMT, Prince, Interpol, The Go-Go's, The Police, Queen, Banna Horses, Chicago, Beethoven, uh, Electric Light Orchestra, Genesis, Glenn Hansard from the motion picture Once, Elvis Costello and the Attractions, Mark Paul McCartney, The Shins, Simon and Garfunkel, Stevie Wonder, Tears for Fears, U2, The Knack. Now, this is all stuff that I'm guessing if you're in your 20s, you're like, what in the world are those things? That's old people music that I love. Okay, next question. Why do people always feel the next generation is going to hell in a handbasket? You know, why do people always feel the next generation is going to hell in a handbasket? It's actually a funny phrase, hell in a handbasket. <laughs> like you have a handbasket and hell is in it. And why are you going to it? It's an interesting visualization. Uh, the reason why is for cognitive bias. Uh, there's 
very well-known cognitive biases. I don't know the exact technical terms. But one of the things is we tend to forget the bad that happened in the past. You know, it, a common example that people use is like someone will go through a horrible pregnancy and a, a, after birth they're like, I'm never having another kid, I'm never having another kid. And then fast forward a couple of years and they're like, I'm going to have another kid. There's just something about us that is probably highly functional where it, we just, the, the bad things tend to fade and we tend to forget how bad it was. Um, and, uh, we, and we also just tend to forget things in the past anyway. Everything sort of sorts of fades, you know, over time, even good things. But um, the other thing is, is that we tend to forget the bad that we did. Like, I'll give a personal example. If you would have asked me, um, like, I don't know, 10 or 20 years ago, what I was like when I was 13 or 14 years old, I would have been like, oh, well, you know, if you would have asked me, was I a snotty kid? I'd have been like, no, I was, you know, I was a happy kid. And, and I actually, you know, might even go to my parents and I'd say, was I a snotty, was I an asshole when I was 13? They'd be like, no, you were great. Well, there's this, my dad got a video camera. He was one of the very first people in our community to have a video camera. And I'm really glad that he got it because he got it when I was 13 or oh, he got it when I was 11, I think. And there's this one clip of me at Christmas when I just turned 13 and I got a trumpet for Christmas. And long story short, I, when I watch this video, I am cringing to my core because I'm being a total snot to my parents. Essentially what's what I can, what I know what's happening is my parents dropped a lot of money on this brand new shiny trumpet for me because I, I played trumpet when I was a kid. And playing trumpet was a big deal in my life. And I was I always rented a trumpet. And so they bought me this trumpet and my dad busts out the video camera. There's you know, it's that giant video camera that sits on your shoulder and the VCR that hangs on your side. And you know, my mom says, you know, it's in the closet and I come on I come into the room and I and I'm like, Oh god, they're filming and I you can see I'm sort of mortified and embarrassed. And they're like, It's in the closet, so I go you know, I go into the closet and I I see this trumpet and I remember this moment when I saw that, tr when I saw the trumpet case, I was like uh, exhilarated. I was just, Oh my God, I got a trumpet. This is so awesome. It's going to be great. I'm going to play it all the time, but I didn't show it <laughs> because I was so embarrassed. And again, I'm just in front of my parents. I don't even think my other siblings are in the room. So I'm, I'm just, I'm what, embarrassed in front of my parents. Like what's up with that? You know, Rewind the clock a few years, I wouldn't have been embarrassed in front of my parents. Just, you know, something about being 13. So I pull down the trumpet, and I'm really far away from the video camera. I put it on the ground, and my parents can't see me. They're trying to film this for posterity, right? And my mom's like, no, no, come here. Come over here. And I look up, and I'm like, oh, really? And I, I, I sort of feign this confusion, like, what do you mean? As if I didn't know they wanted me to come over there. And so I, I said, oh, okay. So I pick up the trumpet, and I walk over, and... I, you know, I'm, I'm looking at the trumpet and I, all I want to do is just die. And again, I'm, I love my parents. They're wonderful people. They don't embarrass me. They're nice people, but I'm just sitting there going like, I'm on camera. This is terrible. I don't know what to do with my hands. I, I'm freaking out. I don't know what to do. And then my mom's like, play it, you know, play it. And I said something like, I can't remember what I said, but it was something like, I can't just play the trumpet right now, Mom. I mean, I was a, I was a total dick. Watching it is 
excruciating. And if you would have asked me prior to seeing that clip what I was like as a 13-year-old, I would never have imagined that I would be such a prick at the age of 13. It would not have occurred to me. I don't remember doing things like that. And after that, I really, I forced myself to watch that thing because I don't want to be a victim of that cognitive bias where I sort of paint this picture of me as this wonderful person throughout history, which is part of being slightly narcissistic and avoidant, right? So I'm looking at that and I'm just like, you know, make sure you burn this into your brain because one, you need to understand your history and two, this, you still have that inside of you. It's not like you're, it's not like you don't have a 13 year old prick inside of you. And so I am, uh, I'm watching that. And without that, I would not have imagined. And then I go to my parents and I sort of apologize. And I'm like, you know, I just watched this video clip. I'm really sorry for my behavior. I'm, I'm guessing I probably did that a lot when I was that age. And, uh, and I'm, I just, I'm mortified that I was like that. I'm just really sorry. And my mom would, and dad are just like, no, 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 you weren't bad. What are you talking about? And I'm looking at this video clip and I'm, and I'm thinking, how do they not remember this prick that I was? And, you know, so that's one cognitive bias that we have. The other is that when we are adults and we're looking at younger people, they tend to be more chaotic and less responsible, right? They drive faster. They spend their money more irresponsibly. They are, you know, I don't know. They're just, they're just more irresponsible in general. And again, we don't remember how irresponsible we were when we were that age. And so we just generally think, man, those 20-year-olds those are irresponsible. I wasn't irresponsible when I was 20. The other thing is, is uh, I've, because I've had this debate, you know, with families, because uh, it's actually a family therapy intervention, is for parents to normalize their kids' behavior. Uh, you know, their, their kid uh, forgets their book at the mall or something, and the parents flip out. And so I'll ask the parent, like, have, do you think you ever forgot something somewhere especially when you were younger they'll be like no no i never did and then we'll drill down on it and they'll be like well yeah i mean one time i forgot where i parked and it took me like a took my family my dad had to drive around town for like a like 24 hours and finally found my car and it was parked like really far away but you know that was just because i was really distracted with work and school and my these friends of mine so when we look at bad things and irresponsible things that we did in the past, we, 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 we couch it in all of these explanations and excuses and context. When we're just observing uh, five teenagers at the mall doing things, we don't do that for them. We just say, oh, they're a bunch of irresponsible little squirts. And so all those cognitive biases and others sort of add up to this general uh, notion that the next generation is going to hell in a handbasket when it's probably not uh because if it was you know gen- every generation always thinks that another thing that i actually think about I, I, is um when i was in grade school i remember being in uh, like third or fourth grade and me and all my friends were looking at the second graders or something and we just thought, man, those second graders are disrespectful. Because as fourth graders, we were like, 
we demand respect and we demand that people uh, obey us on the playground. And these second graders, they don't understand authority. And then, and I really believed it. Then fast forward maybe to the next year, you know, in fifth grade, and we look at the fourth graders and we're like, these fourth graders don't understand authority. And then I'm saying, well, wait a second. Is this really true? I remember thinking this at a very young age. I remember thinking, well, let me analyze this for a second. Because when I was in fourth grade, I was terrified of fifth graders. And I, I didn't talk back to them. Or at least it didn't, I didn't, it didn't feel like I talked back to them. Now, I might not have visually uh, respected them. Like I didn't bow at their feet. But in my mind, I was like, you know, steer clear of the mean fifth graders. Uh, but my classmates, my, you know, I had fellow fourth graders who were absolutely disrespectful to the fifth graders. Now, fast forward to when I'm in fifth grade and I'm looking at the fourth graders, I don't notice all the fourth graders that are being nice to me, but I definitely notice the fourth graders that are being a dick to me. And I paint that as a fourth grader thing. And I'm like, fourth graders don't respect fifth graders. But it's just that every grade, every class has a small group of people who are disrespectful to older kids. And when you are of that grade, you don't notice your fellow classmates being disrespectful because that's not something you're really paying attention to. Anyway. And your last question here is, do you sometimes struggle with clients you feel like you're pretty sure you aren't helping no matter what you have tried, but they still keep showing up on a weekly basis and you don't get it? Uh, yeah, absolutely. It's been a long time since I've felt that way. Um, but sure, um, I have thought at times in with clients that I don't know if I'm actually helping them at all, for sure. And with some of those clients, they just keep coming back to therapy. Yeah. Um, in a very rare case, I will assess them as just coming to therapy out of habit and not actually for any particular reason. But the vast majority of time, what's really happening is they are building up to something, meaning that if you, if you ask them honestly, like, okay, tell me honestly, like, what are you holding back right now? They're, oh, I'm holding back so many things with my therapist. I'm not ready to talk about it yet. And they just need time. So you just need to, you know, put in the time before they're ready to talk about it. You should do what you can to kind of accelerate things as a therapist, but, you know, it doesn't mean that therapy is useless. Um, the other thing is, is that therapy change takes a long time, as I was talking about earlier. And so if I'm, say, six months into therapy and I'm not really sure what's happening, then I just think, well, maybe we're on some kind of track and I just won't notice any change for a long time. The other thing I will say, and this is something that I haven't experienced in a long time because the sort of clients who come to me now are um, sort of like the best sort of clients to come to you <laughs> because they're, they're dying for help and they are you know, articulate and they have money to pay and blah, blah, blah. But when I was in my younger years as a therapist, it, I had a wide variety of the sort of clients I saw. And some clients were coming for a variety of reasons, some of which did not involve them actually wanting help from me. They came because they were court-mandated. They came because their spouse wanted them to go. They came because they thought they should. They came because their parents were telling them to go. They came because they um, were trying to impress people. or I don't know. There's just a lot of reasons why people could come to therapy that actually don't involve wanting therapy. 
and they're just in your office. It's pretty rare that that happens, but it, it definitely can happen, particularly in some context. Like when I worked at an agency, that happened a lot. When I worked at an agency as a young novice therapist, most of my clients didn't want to see me. <laughs> um, eventually, I would convince them to put up with me, and a very few I would convince to actually enjoy the therapy process. But a lot of people who go to agencies are being forced to go, and so... Um, so yeah, sometimes I felt like I was just putting in my time. I don't know if that answers your question. But anyway, I love short questions, people. If you have short questions like patron Karen, then send in those, especially for me and Umberto. All right, well, that does it for that episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining me out there, everybody. Please take care of yourself because you deserve it. <laughs>